0: Good morning again. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians chapter 1, if you're using our red uh, chair Bibles, is on page 568. We're continuing our brief series through um, the topic of prayer. We began that two weeks ago. We're going to look at it today and then next week, So we're pushing our our, kind of our Advent series back a week, which is good because there's another Sunday in December after Christmas that we can still talk about Jesus uh, and Christmas on. So, um, And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to hop in because uh, I fear my sermon's going to go long, so I'm just going to go right in. We're looking at Paul's prayer to the Christians in Ephesus, and as we learn about it, I hope that we will learn how to pray like Paul. And so if you want to take notes, uh, my three points that I'm going to cover today is this. What does Paul pray for? How is that possible? And what does that result in? So what does Paul pray for? How does that happen? How is that prayer answered? And then what results um, happen because of that prayer? So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul in this model prayer. We pray now, Spirit, would you... uh, impress this truth upon our hearts. Would you shape us to being um, disciples of Jesus even more? Would you open the eyes of our heart to see the glorious truth of your love? pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, first, what does Paul pray for? Um, Paul, at this point in his ministry, he is in prison in rome he was an apostle he church planted he was a missionary he planted this church in ephesus uh and then at the end of his missionary journey he's arrested and put in prison in rome and while in rome he hears of what's going on in ephesus this church plant that he planted that he loved people that were dear to his own heart He heard about what was going on and he began to pray for them. And uh, that that Paul is in prison is probably not um, a, a rare thing. I'm sure that there were even Christians in Ephesus who were in prison for their faith. Paul notes that he has heard of their faith in Jesus, which means that some brothers and sisters in Christ have demonstrated their faith in such a way that it was notable And it made its way back to Paul, meaning that brothers and sisters were facing persecution in Ephesus. They were facing family and friends who had rejected them because of their faith. They probably were facing uh, employers and co-workers pressuring them to let go of their backwards beliefs and cave into their pagan society. I'm sure many of them got fired and let go, facing persecution and most certainly imprisonment. They were facing tough circumstances. Not only do we hear of this great faith in Ephesus, we also hear of their great love for one another, love that was noteworthy. It suggests that there were probably many in the church who were in great need, possibly financial or material needs. Most surely, there were physical needs of health. Brothers and sisters in Christ who were sick and who were in need of assistance, and the rest of the church stepped up and gave, gave from their own pockets until it hurt. We know that that was true because Paul heard of their love. And yet, when Paul hears of their circumstances, when he hears that they're facing persecution, when he hears that they are in great need What does he pray for? He doesn't pray that their circumstances would change. He doesn't pray that they would be relieved of their pain. We see that Paul prays that they would know God more. That's his prayer in verse 17, that they would receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. It's not wrong for us to pray for our needs. Jesus himself teaches us to pray for our daily bread, that the Lord would provide everything that we need. Jesus teaches us to pray that we would be delivered from the evil one, that persecution and opposition to the gospel, that we would have a path through that. Paul, elsewhere, will pray for the relief of material needs of the saints. He will pray for the health of those that he cares about. But here, in the midst of their pain and their suffering, what we see is Paul prays that these Christians, in the midst of their circumstances, would know God more. That they would have a deeper knowledge of God. What does Paul mean by praying for a deeper knowledge of God? Is this prayer that these people would come to their senses and enroll in seminary and go off and study theology, bury themselves in books so that they would come away with a deeper knowledge of who God is? No. No, in the Bible, there are different ways of talking about knowing something. There's knowing something And then there's knowing something. Uh, The first way of knowing something is is the cognitive, the the learning something about something else by learning facts, like we would learn from a textbook. The second way of knowing something that the Bible speaks of is, is not rooted in this transfer of facts, but is rooted in an experience of a relationship. I think of the difference between going to school to learn a certain trade or skill versus leaving that school and becoming an apprentice under someone who is doing that skill or trade. It's similar knowledge, but different. Another way I like to think about it is this. I could tell you uh, about my wife, Sarah. I could tell you when her birthday is, I could tell you what her favorite color is. I could tell you what her hobbies are, what she likes, what she doesn't like. I could tell you stories of our past vacations and trips that we've gone on. I could tell you what we like to do for fun on the weekends. I could tell you a lot about Sarah, and you would walk away from that conversation knowing who she is, sure. But at the end of the day, I go home and I live with her. I'm with her day in and day out. I live with her on the good days and on the bad days. I'm with her on those trips and those vacations. I'm next to her when we have fun on the weekends. I get to hear her laugh. I get to hold her when she cries. She's my wife. My knowledge of her is so much deeper than anything you could ever have. We're talking about the same person. You might think you know her, but I know her more. That is what Paul is praying for, a deeper knowledge of God. A knowledge that is rooted not in platitudes about God, not memory verses, not doctrines on their own, not helpful sayings that will cheer someone up when they're feeling down. He prays that in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their times of need, that they would come to a deeper, a relationship knowledge of God. Paul's prayer is this. Do not measure The value of your life on your present circumstances. Do not judge how your life is going based upon how life is going right now. Instead, look at your life through the lens of this deep knowledge relationship of God. When we think of uh, our life on the basis of our present circumstances, we end up thinking in this paradigm. When your life is going well, well, then you think highly of yourself. You must be doing something right. You must be a good person. Things are clicking. But when life goes poorly, when sickness comes, when economic struggles arrive, when children are a mess, when your job gets difficult, then you think something must be wrong. God must be punishing me. I must have messed up. I must not be a good person. When we think of life in this paradigm, we are tossed to and fro on the basis of our present circumstances. But Paul's prayer for us is that in the midst of that storm, that we wouldn't think of our lives being tossed to and fro, but that we would come to a point of an anchor, a truth, that is outside of those circumstances, rooted in a deep knowledge of God. The kind of relationship that we are invited into with God, this knowing of God, it it is a covenantal relationship. And, And I think marriage is a perfect picture of this because when a husband and wife get married, they promise one another and vow to be with one another despite those circumstances. In a similar way, when God enters a relationship with us, when he calls us his own, when he brings us to himself, he promises to always be our God. He promises that we will always be his people. He promises that through everything that you go through, he is present, he is with us, he will care for us. So Paul's prayer for these Christians who are in pain, who are suffering, who are in need, is to remember the anchor of your soul, that God loves you. He has promised to be in your life. He has promised to care for us. His word is steadfast. He is faithful. That's Paul's prayer. And now let's talk about how that prayer is answered. How, how does that prayer actually get into our lives? Paul says uh, in verse 17 that this comes about as a result of receiving the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And then in verse 18, he says that this means having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Like I said, Paul isn't saying open up the textbook and bury your nose into it so you know God more. He's saying, no, you have to receive something, something inside of yourself This is an internal change that comes about by the Spirit. A few things to note about this. First, Paul says that this knowledge, this growth and understanding, it doesn't take place in our heads. You, You might think that to know God more is to acquire more knowledge in our brains about who God is. But Paul here says that transformation takes place in our heart. Contrary to the contemporary stories that we like to tell ourselves, the heart is not the primary place of sentimentality and feelings. According to Scripture, the heart is the center of our will. It's the seat of the person. It is, the heart is the driving organ of our bodies. It sets the course and direction of our lives. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart or guard your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Keep guard over your heart because your heart directs your life. Jesus himself said that that what you find most valuable, what you treasure above all else, that is where you will find your heart. So Paul prays, that our hearts, the very center of our being, the place of prime value and treasure, the organ from which the rest of our bodies operate, he prays that our whole lives would be transformed by this powerful knowledge of God, that it would sink in and direct everything else about us. Now, I want to show you the second thing, the way into the heart. Paul says the way into the heart through the eyes, not our physical eyes, but these metaphorical eyes of our heart, which by default are shut. He prays that our eyes would be enlightened, that they would be illumined, that they would be opened up, that we would behold this truth. Our default condition is that our eyes are shut. In a few verses in chapter 2, Paul says that our default condition is that we are dead in our sins. This is just another way of describing what he's saying here. We are blind. We are dead. Our eyes are shut. We are closed off to the truth. So his prayer is that the Spirit of God would come in, open up our hearts, open up our eyes that it would flood into our hearts and shine his glory, that he would bring us from a place of death to life, place of blindness to sight, so that we might know the depths of the knowledge of God. It's the power of the Spirit that accomplishes this. It's not an external ritual or, or rite. It's not external workings. It is an internal movement of the Spirit that Paul prays for. For Christians who already have the Spirit within them, Paul's prayer is that they would be further strengthened in the Spirit. That what is already present in them would strengthen them more and more. But we could adapt Paul's prayer here when we pray for our non-Christian friends, right? When we pray for our non-Christian friends, we can pray this prayer the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened as well. In fact, unless the Spirit works in the lives of our non Christian friends, there is no hope. I'm currently reading a book um, which is about how to share the gospel with postmodern skeptics. And it, it talks about how there are these five steps, these five barriers, these five transitions or obstacles that have to be overcome. Um, to bring a skeptic, postmodern, non believer to faith in Jesus. And, and it gives us uh, strategies of how we as individuals in a church can go about addressing these barriers. And, and I've got wonderful books that walk through how we can talk about the faith in a logical and rational way that uh, challenges the presuppositions of our neighbors. I, I've got books that talk about here are the good tools and helpful ways to ask questions and lead someone to the truth of the gospel. All of those are great tools, and we need them. But this passage tells us that unless the Spirit opens up our hearts, those tools can do nothing. It is the Spirit that is the essential means by which people see truth. Without the Spirit, none of those things work. The Spirit is the power that turns on the lights of their understanding. Now that it's Christmas time officially, Christmas movies are on TV. One of my favorite Christmas movies is Christmas Vacation uh, with Clark Griswold and how he goes over the top and overboard for his family holidays. And one of the most memorable scenes in that whole movie is after Clark spends hours outside hanging millions of lights on his house. He brings everyone outside to see his, the beauty and glory of his house, and he p- puts the plugs together. And What happens? Well, at first, the lights don't come on. And he's, he's frustrated. He goes through and checks every single bulb. He checks his wires. He checks his diagram. He's done everything that he can. But he pulls them together, and the lights do not come on. And then he realizes someone in the back of the house has flipped the switch off. And eventually he realizes that, goes back, flips it on, and in one last great like, sign of glory, he brings the cords together, and it's on. What he realizes is the lights will not come on unless there is power. We need the Spirit of God to open the eyes of the hearts of our neighbors to see the beauty and glory of God. Friends, as we head into the new year, we are going to be focusing our attention towards praying for non-Christians. That's going to be one of the the values that we go back to again and again and again. Friends, let us follow Paul's example and pray that the Spirit of God would open the eyes of their hearts. Without that, they can't see. So that's how this prayer is answered through the Spirit working in our hearts. Finally, what results from this? What is the result of this prayer for these Christians who are in the midst of pain and suffering and times of need? Well, there's three things we see happen. First, they receive a new attitude. Paul wants us to know, in verse 18, what is the hope to which he has called us? That is, he wants us to remember that we have this sure and certain destiny, that one day we will be united with God in heaven for all of eternity. It is as certain as the sky is blue and the snow is white. But what effect does that certainty have on us day in and day out in our circumstances? Tim Keller shares this super helpful illustration he says, consider two people who have been hired to work for a day in a factory making widget boxes. Widget boxes, it doesn't matter what they do, they just they widget in their boxes, and they make them in this factory. And these two people have been hired to make widget boxes, uh, and, and the room is hot, the room is stuffy, the conditions are terrible. All day long, they're just making widget box after widget box after widget box. People are yelling and shouting. The task is tiresome. It's the same thing again and again and again and again, all day long. But at the beginning of the day, before they begin, the first person, uh, he was hired and told that at the end of the day, they would receive $300 for their work. The second guy was hired and brought in and told that at the end of the day, you're going to receive a million dollars. Now consider... The attitude of these two guys in the process of their circumstance. The first one will eventually get tired and fed up and bored and realize, I don't need this. This isn't worth it. $300, that's nothing. I could go find something else to do. The other guy, through all the pain and suffering and toil, it won't matter at all. He knows what lies for him at the end of the day. When we look at our present circumstances and we remember what is our hope, we're able to withstand the problems of today. Not suppress them or ignore them, but overcome them. What we believe about our future glory determines our attitude and how we perceive our present pain. This is what Paul says in Romans, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul prays that they would know God and know the hope that they have been called to, that despite their present circumstances, there is hope. The second thing that Paul wants us to know and the result of knowing God more is that we have a fixed identity. Paul praised not only that they would know the hope that they have been called to, but that they would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That is to say that uh, we, as God's own people, we are God's inheritance, and that to him, we are lovely. That's what Paul wants us to see, that to God, through Christ, we are his glorious inheritance. God is the creator of the world, the universe. He is above all things. He, the one who holds all things together, the one who is before all things, who every square inch of this world belongs to him, the one who holds all together, the one who rules the nations, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He, in his infinite power and wisdom and strength and might, he looks down into his creation and says, I choose you. The whole world is mine, and I choose you. You are my special possession. You will be my people. I will be your God. You are my treasure, my delight, my inheritance. And when we know that we are God's inheritance, that changes the way we think about ourselves One of my kids' favorite books is the little book, Corduroy. Maybe you remember, maybe you've read it to your own children. It's a story of a simple bear. There's nothing really about himself that makes him great. He's just one toy amongst other toys on the shelf. In fact, he's lost a button. He's broken. He's unlovable, maybe. But the story goes that little Lisa sees Corduroy on the shelf and says, I choose you. I'm going to give all my money that I have and choose you, and I will buy you and make you my own. I will bring you home into my home, and I will heal you. I will give you a button. You are my special possession, my treasured possession. Corduroy becomes beautiful in the eyes of Lisa. When we know in our hearts when we know deep down that we are God's possession, we're able to cast off the lies of the enemy, those whispers that try to convince us just how unlovely we are, just how broken we are, just how unpolished we are. Yes, it is true. We are sinners. Yes, we are broken. Yes, we are missing our buttons. But it is also true that we have been bought with a price. We are no longer our own. We belong to Jesus. And in him, we are beautiful in the eyes of God. Paul wants us to know that. Finally, Paul wants us to know not only our hope that we have, not only the beauty and richness that we are as his inheritance, Finally, Paul wants us to know the power of God that is at work towards us. It is an immeasurable power. Paul uses four words that are all about power. He says, it's great, it's mighty, it's powerful, and it's working towards us. He almost is straining for words to describe this great immeasurable power. And that power is directed towards us in Christ. It's not not power towards us in that in our pain and our suffering we can tap into it like a, a shot of adrenaline and then overcome our circumstances. No. It is a power, it is an assurance that the one who wields that power holds us in his hands. It's not power that we tap into to overcome our circumstances. It's the knowledge that in our circumstances, the one who wields power holds us in his hands. Paul says this is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him on the throne. This is a sovereign power. This is an infinite power. The kind of power that changes the course of nature from death to life. The kind of power that puts Christ above all other things. He says he puts everything subject to him. This is the power towards us. A power that can save us. Paul, we read, says that it is God's power that brings us from death to life. It's God's power that seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. It is a sovereign and saving power towards us. What does that mean? It means that whatever we're facing, whatever circumstance we're in, whatever pain we feel, we can be sure of this. Because of his immeasurable power towards us, all things must work together for our good. If the power working towards us not only can save us, but it is sovereign. That means all things, even our present circumstances, must work together for our good. The same power that saves us now rules the world, even our circumstances. And if we are his, which we are, then all things must work together for our good. I love how Paul summarizes this in Romans 8. He says, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, do you know this God and the power of this God? Not power that we can tap into to overcome our circumstances, but the power of God directed towards us, knowing that he holds us. We are his. This is what we can learn from Paul when we pray for one another in the church, when we pray for our family and friends. We need to pray that we would know God more know his relationship with us more. That we would know him in such a way that our present circumstances don't dictate our life, but that we would know the hope that we have been called to, our identity in him, and the power that he has working towards us.